Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Before we jump into today's interesting program about George Armstrong Custer, some unfinished business from yesterday. You recall we talked with USU professor Deborah Jensen about her recent TEDxUSU talk, which was titled The Comic Universe Belongs to Everyone, in which she argues that increasing diversity in the comic universe is a good thing and should be encouraged. And we got these comments that came in after the program. Uh, first up is Joe. Joe says, in my opinion, comics should be relegated to kids. Persons should be investing their time furthering the interests of humanity. All this attention to quote-unquote fantasy is a waste of time. Just my two cents worth. That's Joe. Thank you for that. And then Steve has emailed in. He said, I'm listening now to the evening rebroadcast about 25 minutes in. I wish I'd been listening this morning. A baby boomer in his 60s. I have improbably found myself engrossed in the Netflix Marvel comic series. Jessica Jones, Daredevil, and Luke Cage all set in New York City. And Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. originally broadcast on ABC and now streamed on Netflix. I probably should be embarrassed to admit that, but I'm not. And I would love to have emailed this morning to get your guest take. These are... Uh, these diverse, a lot of comic book characters. Uh, Jessica Jones is a woman super, superhero with PTSD and alcohol issues, having an affair with a black man. Daredevil is white, true, but he's blind. Luke Cage is black, as are most of his adversaries, some of whom are more evil than others. And Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. are an ethnically diverse team of super spies. Pretty di- different from the Superman and Batman comics I loved uh, so loved in the 50s and early 60s as a kid. That's Steve. And then Steve uh, emailed back in, Rule of thumb, DC superheroes wear capes, Marvel superheroes don't. That's uh, Steve. So thanks for those responses. Keep those coming to upraxcess at gmail.com. This program is made possible by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Campfires is a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize's board and the Federation of State Humanities Councils in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. The initiative seeks to illuminate the impact of journalism and the humanities on American life today to imagine their future, and to inspire new generations to consider the values represented by the body of the Pulitzer Prize-winning work. The Campfires Initiative is also supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation of New York, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Pulitzer Prizes Board, and Columbia University. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. T.J. Stiles won the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for History for his book Custer's Trials, A Life on the Frontier of a New America. In this biography, Stiles demolishes George Armstrong Custer's historical character. He says the key to understanding Custer is that he lived on a frontier in time. In the Civil War, the West, and many areas, Custer helped to create modern America, but he could never adapt to it. He freed countless slaves, yet he rejected new civil rights laws. He tried to make a fortune on Wall Street, yet never connected with the new corporate economy. Native Americans fascinated him, but he could not see them as fully human. A popular writer, he remained apart from Ambrose Bierce, Mark Twain, and other rising intellectuals. During his lifetime, Americans saw their world remade. remade rather. His admirers saw him as the embodiment of the nation's gallant youth, all that they were losing, his detractors despised him for resisting a more complex and promising future. In addition to Custer's trials, T.J. Stiles is the author of The First Tycoon, The Epic Life of Cornelius Vanderbilt, which we received the 2010 Pulitzer Prize for Biography and the 2009 National Book Award for Nonfiction. He's also author of Jesse James, Last Rebel of the Civil War, which won uh, several awards. And uh, T.J. Stiles lives in Berkeley, California with his wife and uh, children. He joins us now. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Good to have you uh, with us. Um, I, I want to uh, start with with this, which really struck me from your afterward. You said uh, you wrote this um, about your, your biography of uh, Vanderbilt. You said, I believe in researching in terror, writing with confidence, publishing with humility. Uh, and I, as, I, as I thought about that, I thought that that's, that's pretty wise. Uh, I want to have you apply that to Custer. How... You research in terror, write in confidence, publish in humility. Uh, what is it about those three things that applies to Custer? Well, uh, always when you're you're doing a thorough nonfiction book, uh, you can only write based on the evidence that you have. You can't you can't make things up. You can ponder it. You can think about it on the page, but um, you know you have to start with the material. And if you don't 
dig up enough material, or if you leave stuff out there that you haven't seen, you're not getting the whole story and you're not telling the best story that you can. Uh, nor are you getting at the facts and the, the knowledge that we can acquire. So the things with Custer is that there's an enormous amount of material that, that is out there. And the question is, what else? What are the areas of his life that haven't been dug up many, many times? Um, uh, the story has to be told with confidence. Uh, you, you can't be um, full of self-doubt and have that come across on the page. And yet, when the book comes out, you have to be aware of the fact that many people have written on the same subject. Many people are knowledgeable about the field that you're writing in. And you can't believe that you are going to be the last word, or even necessarily that you supplanted every other book. With Custer, there is so much work that has been done by scholars, by um, buffs, by people who want to prosecute or defend him. And a lot of it is really good writing and excellent research. And so my desire was to, to, particularly with Custer, was to, as I put it in my preface, to change the camera angle, to um, look at him from a perspective that he has not been examined from before. But even then, I am very aware of the excellent work and the vast research others have done. And so I, I'm trying to make a constructed, constructive and enjoyable contribution. You've spent quite a bit of time uh, focusing on the Civil War era. You, you say you believe we can see the makings of modern America uh, here. And you further said you see Custer and his wife Libya's figures on a frontier in time. That was, the, I guess that's the camera angle that you want to, to use? Yes, that's right. Uh, um, yeah, so go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I thought you were going to follow up with another question. Uh, no, no. no. Uh, go ahead. Well, no, I just, uh, I think it's very important to think about this period is the time when so many areas of life that we now take for granted come into being and people debate them in a fundamental way. And this is key because Custer became a national hero at 23, and he became a national controversy at the age of 26. And then he was dead at the age of 36. So, so many books look at that last part of that equation, the moment when he dies, and then everything else is seen as a path up to that moment. And it's like a black hole. It compresses everything into a singularity. And you lose information, and you also lose the story of this very volatile, very fascinating, even at his worst, fascinating person. So you lose the, the fascination of the story, and you lose the information if you look at everything from the end. My interest is, how was it he became a national hero? Not only what did he do, but what did he say to Americans? What did they see in him? And then the question is, why did they debate him? And what I find in my book is that people argued about Custer as a way of arguing about themselves, as a way of arguing about America. And so he embodied very much the, the conflict as Americans went into the Civil War era and things began to change. Uh, there is the nature of mass warfare in which instead of individual heroics, men were, were dying at random by the tens of thousands in battle in a way they never had before. There's the rise of the corporate economy, the organizational world, in which people no longer expect to automatically do that they will start their own farm or business, but they see a future in which they go to work for large corporations. As an army officer, Custer lived in the pioneering institution of that change. And then there's a whole range of other changes that he took part in, and he struggled with. The results of the Civil War, the idea of civil rights and racial equality, the uh, rise of financial markets and this new economy, which he tried to take part in, the new national media, and the ways in which the Civil War had affected American culture. Um, he was someone who was immersed in all of these changes, excited by them, and yet he became controversial because he opposed many of those changes, and he stood for uh, an earlier America. It's interesting to see, I don't want to loop back and get his history, but interesting to uh, read in the epilogue, um, his, his widow Libby um, and others were, were fighting for um, fighting for his... Um, uh, you know his his fame, a good view of him. 
Uh, others were fighting against that. Uh, after his death, that, that fight continued. What was it about Custer that, that made him this near-mythical figure, that, that, that made him in his time a, um, a source of controversy and, and a way of looking at the new modernity? Well, every biography, I think, um, at least the ones that I write, uh, do two things. They look inward and they look outward. So we try to understand the individual. This is the literary and uh, humanity side of the story, trying to understand what it means to be a person moving through the world. And in Custer's case, to be a person moving through a very tumultuous time. And then there's the question of the larger meaning, the context, what it says about the world. So um, Custer was someone who was fascinating because he had this tremendous ambition to be great, as he wrote to his wife at one point. Um, not to be powerful, not to be rich. He wanted all of those things also. But his primary ambition was to be great. The thing is with Custer, though, is that he, on his way toward that goal, he combined real merit. And his, his historical stock has fallen so far that we forget that he was actually very capable at the business of being a soldier when it came to combat. And he became a national hero because he was an excellent combat commander. Um, inspirational, um, tactically shrewd, perceptive. Um, his men in, in the Civil War in particular really loved him, and they loved him because he got them victories in particular. But that desire to be great reflected um, inner turmoil. He was from a very obscure and poor background in what's basically southern Ohio. His parents were perpetually poor. They were constantly pressing him um, about joining the church. Uh, they put a lot of moral pressure on him um, to declare his faith in Jesus. He had this kind of pull from his, or, his origins, and he wanted to escape that. He wanted to become the cosmopolitan man. He wanted to become the, the great um, national hero. And, and the pressure that put on him that I see is a kind of insecurity. He always wanted to be seen as great, and there was always a dread in him that he would not be seen that way, and I think perhaps that he would not feel that way himself. So along with his ability and his exuberance and his, his youthful flamboyance, he really cultivated this, this air with his elaborate costume. He became a general at 23, and he immediately showed up in a black velveteen general's tunic with gold braid winding up from his, his cuff to his sleeve, with a sailor's shirt tufting out over the top and a bright red tie. It was a deliberately romantic image. And yet, um, whenever he was challenged, when someone found fault in him, he grew brittle. He would lash out. He would go too far in defending himself. And that created an essential instability in his life that led to him creating disasters for himself as he moved farther and farther away from the Civil War. And then he would have to dig himself out of the mess he had made. Mm. And, um, you know, we can go into the specifics of what those controversies were, but that's the kind of inner conflict that I see at work in Custer. I, as I was reading the, the, this book, by the way, fascinating, um, and it glimpsed behind it, you know, it, we when we think of Custer kind of in the popular conception, it's a little big horn and it's, you know, long hair and it's, uh, you know, failed commander, although the truth you're saying is he, he was quite skilled. Um, I I had a comparison come to my mind, and I resisted it, <laughs> but it, it kept being bullet points uh, to, to support it. I, I don't, I'm going to ask you what you think of it, and then we'll get back to Custer. Um, you know, brittle, uh, insecure, uh, wanting uh, fame, um, rejecting remorse, not admitting he was wrong. Those could uh, describe our president-elect. Yeah, I, I have been asked that question before, and um, uh, certainly anyone who's a defender of the president will, um, and who doesn't like Custer will not like the comparison. You know, these, these on one hand, you know, it, it's, it's easy to, to draw these, these parallels. On the other hand, they both represent a very interesting dynamic that, that we see in, in American life. And, you know, in times of great change, in worries specifically about the system. I mean, Custer's public life was about battles over the American system and whether it was failing, how it should be remade. 
And there is this constant tension between those who want to change and those who want to return and restore. Restoration versus reformation. You know, this is a constant theme um, whenever you face periods of systemic change. And currently we, we face issues of globalization. We face um, changes in the economy as the old um, industrial economy is um, becoming less important. And we have a digital and service economy. You know, that there's huge changes that are taking place. Uh, the way we connect with each other, um, all kinds of things are changing. And it, it, it makes people feel uneasy. Um, America is becoming a much more diverse place. And that is, the president-elect was explicit about it, bringing up issues of race and ethnicity and immigration again and again in ways that even unsettled many of his fellow elected Republicans. In the case of Custer, you have very similar themes. You have this flamboyance that speaks to an earlier America. The Jacksonian era was an age of romantic individualism in American life in which, you know, flamboyance and cultivating an appearance was something that was questioned more and more. One of the one of the relationships that's key to my book is the relationship between Custer and Grant. It begins in the Civil War and it goes through till actually the day of Custer's death. Grant is very much the modern man. Um, he's anti-flamboyant. He is all about getting the job done. Um, he's a straightforward man of business who doesn't like to talk too much. He doesn't like a big show. Um, he, as, as one historian put it, he managed battles rather than led heroically. And, you know, this is very much kind of the modern uh, um, manager, the, the organizational man, the anti-romantic, anti-flamboyant figure. That's a very modern sensibility. Not that flamboyance has gone away, obviously. It's back in spades. But... Um, you know, this is a more modern sense. And Custer represents an earlier America that embraces romanticism and individualism. And that's what people liked about him. And in his little slice of the Civil War, it worked quite well because of the nature of warfare at that time, as I explained in my book. But when he went west, when he went out onto the Great Plains to fight Native Americans, it was very interesting because two things happened. One, that flamboyance wasn't necessary on the battlefield. He only fought four battles in the 11 years after the Civil War. That would describe a typical week for him in the Civil War. So his opportunities to engage in the one thing he was excellent at um, grew farther and farther apart. He still cultivated a flamboyant image, but now it began to serve his own desire to become a national romantic figure in a new setting. He was cultivating an image of himself, not for his men, but for national media and for the new broad national public who are reading national magazines, etc. And it became, his behavior became to be seen as self-indulgent, as selfish, as self-aggrandizing, and the army really began to look askance at him. The other thing that happened is he, um, he threw himself into the politics of Reconstruction, and as a serving army officer, he allied himself openly with President Andrew Johnson in his battle with Congress over the shape of Reconstruction. And Grant was disgusted with Johnson. He believed in extending protections for African Americans and making them full citizens. He was someone who moved uh, toward a more and more expansive view of what it meant to be an American. But Custer did not. And that's something that's a very interesting theme that we see, you know, again, people are debating, who is an American? Um, is American culture being changed by admitting these others? Um, and is my place in the world being unsettled by new rivals or by, um, you know, both now and then by African Americans? You know, there is a, a large portion of the American public that is openly asking these questions. And that's really interesting to see that return again. Interesting, and some find it quite alarming. But with Custer, that's when this debate starts, because it's the moment when race is taken out of the Constitution when it comes to defunding slavery, or citizenship, when not only is slavery abolished, but there's a huge fight over civil rights and um, enfranchising people who are not white. Custer throws himself into that battle. 
after being a Union war hero, he finds himself being politically scorned by much of the public. And so he goes west under a political cloud. So even before he fights his first battle with um, American Indians on the Great Plains, before that controversy takes hold, he becomes controversial over politics and his participation in the debate over the meaning of the Civil War. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to uh, get uh, actually a, a, a question that's come in by email that will get us uh, into s- some of the history. That I was going to bring up his West Point uh, days, and uh, Steve uh, will get us uh, there and uh, bring this uh, this forward. It, it's interesting, uh, T.J. Stiles, you, you're talking about the parallels, and that's that's a big reason why we should study history, right? It, 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 it comes back around. Yeah, that's Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's not so much that history is a pattern. It's more like a river. And if you want to know the shape, understand why the river is the way it is now, uh, what's in that water, uh, why it's flowing so fast or so slow, you've got to look farther upstream and see what is going into that current farther up. Let's take a break. We're talking with T.J. Stiles. He is a Pulitzer Prize winner uh, for a previous book and also for Custer's Trials, the current book, A Life on the Frontier of a New America. And uh, we have him uh, for the hour. You can join the conversation uh, a couple of ways. You can call us, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can reach us by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. More following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. Let's get this one right. The group leader called out to her team who was building a complex custom demise. Then she corrected herself. She said, let's get this one righter. Awkward language aside, people who work continuous improvement, lean manufacturing, or enterprise excellence know that every product and every process can be made better. Nothing is ever perfect. They are comfortable with the permanent question, how can I make that better? If you cannot see ways to improve your product or service, ask your customer. If they don't tell you, your competitor might. But by then it might be too late and you'll be out of the game. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business. A 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. We're uh, talking with T.J. Stiles. Uh, who is a multiple Pulitzer Prize winner and won the National Book Award as well. He wrote a biography of uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, also Jesse James. The uh, current biography is Custer's Trials, A Life on the Frontier of a New America. It's winner of the uh, Pulitzer Prize for 2016 uh, for history. Uh, You're welcome to join this conversation at 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com is our email. TJ Styles with us uh, for the hour. Uh, we have a couple of emails from Steve. Um, f- first one uh, says, was Custer at or near the bottom of his West Point class, or am I thinking of Pickett, or maybe both? At the bottom of his, of his class. Uh, Custer was absolutely at the bottom of his class, though he claimed, um, and I, I haven't done the research to confirm this, he claimed that if the Southern cadets who seceded, who withdrew and resigned from West Point when their state seceded, um, if they had remained in the class, there would have been a few below him. I don't know if that's true. I do know that he set a record at West Point for the number of demerits. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that says something about, about the man. It's not that he was stupid. He was actually, uh, you know, had a real uh, yen for, in, for scientific breakthroughs. He collected fossils when he was on Western expeditions and sent them to the Smithsonian. Uh, he did a lot of reading. But at West Point, he was... He was trying to gain favor with his fellow cadets, and um, so he did that with pranks and other things that that kind of won the affection of his fellow cadets. And so that constant kind of playing to his the audience of his fellow cadets led him into one prank after another, and um, nearly got him expelled. He really graduated mainly because his luck held his famous Custer luck. Mm. 
And and you, it's interesting. Custer is is a bundle of contradictions. He 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 grows up poor. He gets this great opportunity. He's appointed to West Point, and and as you write, he makes the least of it. Yes, that's right. You know, uh, yeah, the bundle of contradictions is really key because, um, you know, Custer is always surprising. Uh, I even when he was at his most exasperating. Uh, when he's out in the stump battling civil rights, for example, um, then, or, you know, creating problems in his marriage, which is really key to the book. Uh, the women in this story, uh, thanks to the sources, really, really come out as three-dimensional characters. Um, but there was something very passionate and very human about him. And so, you know, he went to West Point. He has, he's poor. He has a chance to get a rare chance at a college education. And he mainly was concerned about his social standing and, and having a good time. And yet what's interesting, again, this is part of his contradiction, is that he went into the Civil War, and now he began to perform for his superiors. He went, marched off straight to war, and he really won recognition because of his merit. He was an excellent um, junior officer, and that won him a place on the staff of General George B. McClellan, and from there, that began his um, uh, path toward becoming a brigadier general at the age of 23. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve writes back in a comment. He says, listening to your guest describing the dialectic of Custer's chivalric flamboyance of an earlier era versus the modernist practicality of Grant, both from Ohio, right? One can't help but to, to think of the same dialectic generationally in the Lee family, the flamboyant light horse Harry Lee and his son, the practical general, uh, parenthetically, usually Pickett's charge, and notwithstanding, Robert E. Lee. You know, well, that's an interesting comparison. Um, one thing to note about Custer is that, as I, I mentioned in the book, and I could have made more of it, you know, he's from a border state culture. His father's from Maryland. He was from a part of Ohio that was much closer to what was then Virginia than to Toledo or, um, you know, the industrial areas around the Great Lakes. And so he really had, you know, this kind of border state mentality that I was familiar with from writing about Jesse James. And uh, there was a real strong Southern um, uh, outlook. And so there were generals who dressed flamboyantly, who behaved on the battlefield with this exaggerated chivalry that Custer had. Uh, They were all Southern generals. And so the comparison with Lee, actually a comparison to Jeb Stewart, would be a much better comparison than some of the other Southern generals, or Pickett, actually. Um, however, yes, it's, it's a fascinating comparison, but um, it, it almost doesn't work because um, Lighthorse Harry Lee was the this, this spendthrift, the kind of irresponsible Lee, and um, Robert E. Lee was the <clears throat> more upstanding, responsible man who was a gambler in the battlefield, but a very dignified presence in other ways. Uh, I want to uh, dive in more into these uh, contradictions. Have you tell us a little bit more about Custer, the the person, um, capable yet insecure, intelligent yet bigoted, passionate yet self-destructive, a romantic individualist at odds with the institution of the military. Uh, maybe we could pause there. Uh, he was court-martialed twice in six years, you say. That's correct. Uh, when he was coming out of West Point, he'd actually graduated, but at the time the Army gave regular Army officers their ranks and the, their positions were tethered to specific regiments. So the West Point graduates had to wait until a spot opened in a specific regiment, <clears throat> pardon me, before they could become a second lieutenant. And so Custer waited a, a few days um, as a technically a cadet at West Point. Uh, two cadets started fighting. He said, stand back, boys, and let them have a fair fight. It was his responsibility as the captain of the guard at that point to have them both arrested. So it was a minor infraction, but it reflects the way in which Custer had this kind of bend-the-rules, you know, um, romantic ideal. Um, But later on, when he was court-martialed the second time, this reflects a side of the story which is very important to my book that we haven't dealt with, which is Custer in the West and in the wars against Native Americans. And in his first year in the West, he did much better later on, but it was really disastrous. Uh, He went out on an ill-thought expedition to intimidate the Southern Cheyennes under General um, Winfield Scott Hancock. And Custer was commander of the cavalry on that expedition. 
And all the time he was under pressure because he had just come out of this political campaign in which many Republicans in the North who dominated the North scorned him almost as a traitor for siding with Andrew Johnson um, and opposing uh, Reconstruction measures. Um, he had a crisis in his marriage. He loved his wife passionately, and they have a very intimate relationship I, I delve into in the book. And yet he so needed affirmation, the attention of other women, and he was a very sexual man. And so he um, was constantly creating problems with his love of attention from other women and quite possibly affairs. And there's reason to believe that he was going too far with one of his wife's best friends who had actually accompanied them on their move west to Kansas. And so he's created a mess in his marriage. He's under all this pressure that has is, is really stressed him out. And then he goes out and he meets the Southern Cheyennes and Oglala Lakotas. All he wants to do is get back to his wife to fix things. And he's caught in the middle of a war. Um, and it's disastrous. You know, he shoots his own horse, which in a kind of Freudian slip turns out actually to be his wife's horse. When he's out hunting a buffalo away from his column as the war is breaking out, um, he manages to get himself rescued. Um, he uh, is fooled and made a fool of twice by the Oglala war leader, Pawnee Killer, who I think showed a real sense of humor in the way that he tricked Custer. And Custer suffered desertions in his unit. Um, he had men shot down as they tried to escape. Uh, he, he lashed out at his men with outrageous discipline, and he finally was court-martialed for abandoning his men in the field. He really deserved that court-martial. But it shows how all of the, the volatility, the kind of brittleness that underlay his, his flamboyant image, that underlay his, his real merit as a combat commander, you know, he had this other side to him, the self-destructive side, and it resulted in a court-martial. Now, he bounced back from that um, when he was called back a little early from a suspension, that was his punishment, and he led the attack on the Southern Cheyennes at the Battle of the Washita. Very controversial battle. Women and children died. The leading um, peace leader in the Southern Cheyennes died in that attack. And yet he did exactly what his superiors asked him to do, and he carried off what they wanted quite well. Um, Custer was not a leading figure in advocating attacks on uh, Native Americans, but he very much was the mainstream of the Army, which saw the wars against American Indians almost as a race war, actually definitely as a race war. And um, Custer was quite mainstream in that respect. Yeah, I was, I was um, just. Uh, uh, excuse me. I, I was just thinking that uh, that uh, you're describing his his reaction, his thoughts about it, the, the American Indians, you know, the Native Americans. It, mm -hmm. it seemed like he was a man of his times. The, the fascinated by by Indians, uh, didn't see them as fully human. You know, seeing this as a, as a race war, I, I'm sure manifest destiny comes in here. Well, yes, absolutely, and and he wrote about this. I mean, this is what's so fascinating, is that he started to write about his life for the new general interest national magazines that are proliferating, and he wrote a serialized memoir called My Life on the Plains, and most of it is an adventure story written in a kind of old-fashioned style, um, but the first two chapters show him really trying to be a public intellectual, and he wrote about the natural history of the Great Plains in very serious terms, well-informed terms. But when he gets to American Indians, it, he, he struggles with the fact that his actual experience showed them to be every bit his equal. Even in, he, he'd taken part in councils and had heard their eloquence and even writes about how they're, if anything, more eloquent than the white people that you know, had debated with them. And he's got to find a way to fit this experience into the, the, what they called the racial science of the day that had scientists actually marked out a, a hierarchy, hierarchy of ability and mental capacity in which, of course, white people were at the top. You know, Custer believed that. He'd been taught that. Most people, white people believed it. And he had to kind of cram it in there, and he really had to struggle to explain it. Um, he, he later on had a number of respectful relationships with American Indians who worked for him as scouts, particularly Bloody Knife, an extraordinarily um, capable man who um, uh, ended up dying at the Little Bighorn along with Custer. 
Um, it's interesting, though, too, in the African-American story, uh, he had as his household managers, his cook, but really as his household manager, an escaped slave named Eliza Brown. And she was not simply a quiet, you know, servant um, off in the kitchen. She w- played a major part in Custer's life and seized the opportunity of working for a man who was a wartime general. And then in the regular army, you know, his permanent rank was made lieutenant colonel after the war. She seized that opportunity to carve out authority for herself, to build up her own patronage network by distributing food to other escaped slaves. She was this very strong presence who tried to lobby the Custers to teach them about race and about the meaning of slavery. And and she had an effect on him. She actually helped bring him very far along in that path. But, you know, when he turned from this personal relationship to thinking politically, then that's when he reverted to kind of the conservatism he'd been raised with. And and again, it's a contradiction in Custer that reflects the way America was changing. His his private life, his, his wife is is dealing with an African-American for the first time, and they're both struggling for control of the household. I mean, it really reflects within his own house what America is going through at large. And, you know, they're not, they're not you know, Custer is often derided as an evil person. He wasn't evil. He was an exaggerated version of what other Americans were. Flamboyant, outsized, controversial, self-destructive, highly capable. There's a reason why he became a focal point for all of these debates over how America was changing. No wonders, you're right, Americans argued about him as a way of arguing about themselves. Yeah, he, he does reflect a lot of those, those themes. Yeah, it frustrated his wife immensely yeah. because Libby Custer was very well-educated, very fascinating woman. She had served as his political liaison during the Civil War to um, senators and congressmen um, because a, a you know, general in the Civil War needed political support. And so she saw the way Congress worked up close. You know, she saw them maneuvering... Um, trading favors, you know, being corrupt, uh, getting drunk. And when he started to get interested in politics, she kept warning him, stay away, stay away. And there is a lingering image that Custer was not political because she retroactively in her memoirs, you know, she bent the truth and said, oh, Custer was not interested in politics, which just simply wasn't true. And I think it's because she hated the way in which politics made him a controversial figure. And many people who had loved him came to scorn him because of it. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to uh, follow up with uh, these two very important women in, in Custer's life, his wife Libby and, uh, and then his household uh, manager, Eliza. Um, and uh, there's a very poignant scene in, uh, in the epilogue where, uh, you know, well after Custer's death, 1886, I believe it is, um, Eliza comes to visit Libby in New York. They have a reunion of sorts. And uh, there again, that, that reunion reflects uh, how, how the country has changed, and even there's some echoes to, to uh, current times. We'll talk about that, and uh, we'll get to an email from uh, Glenn. Uh, you're welcome to email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us, 800-826-1495. More with T.J. Stiles and his book, Custer's Trials, following this break. Holiday programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you by our members and Dr. Patrick Lusney, Practicing Urology with the team of physicians at the Budge Clinic, 1340 North, 500 East in Logan. Intermountain Clinics, wishing UPR listeners a safe and happy holiday season. Information at 435-716-1450. This is Craig Jessup. I hope you'll join us for Christmas with the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra. We'll feature holiday classics with a few fun surprises and much more. Our guest artists include Jenny Oakes Baker, Jenny Jordan Frogley, and Kurt Bester, along with the Westminster Bells. That's Christmas with the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra, Monday evening from 7 to 9, here on Utah Public Radio. Christmas with the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra is sponsored by Import Auto in Logan. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We reached our, <clears throat> excuse me, our last segment with T.J. Styles, uh, winner of the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for History for his biography Custer's Trials: A Life on the Frontier of a New America. He won the National Book Award and a previous Pulitzer Prize for his uh, autobi- uh, his biography of uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt. Very interesting uh, book. Previous to that, uh, the biography of uh, Jesse James. Uh, T.J. Styles is with us for another uh, 10 minutes. You're welcome to join the conversation here at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or uh, you can call us, 800-826-1495. Uh, here's an email from Glenn. Glenn says, hello, I know that in the military, particularly in basic training, Custer's legacy and name are used pejoratively, almost routinely. He's painted as foolish and impulsive, as something not to aspire to in the modern U.S. military. It was with that mindset that I had visited the Little Bighorn a National Historic Site, which is inspiring and beautiful. I took away a perspective sympathetic with the natives. Around that same time, I read the book Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Its theme seemed to strongly project the vengeance of the 7th Cavalry upon the natives. It's quite a legacy that he both intentionally and inadvertently left behind. That being said, says Glenn, I am highly interested in this book. I just added it to my book list. So thanks for that, uh, uh, Glenn. Uh, Your comment, T.J. Stiles. Yeah, this is an interesting point because, uh, of course, obviously Custer made terrible mistakes at the Little Bighorn, um, and yet, as a result, um, his least successful battle uh, has come to define uh, his uh, combat capacity um, in a life that, in which his one consistent strength was combat. Uh, it's quite an irony. Um, the, there's a couple things we should note. One is that if we run down Custer and talk about how foolish and impetuous and, and foolhardy he was, then we run down the scale of that native victory. Uh, the Cheyennes and Lakotas and their allies at the Little Bighorn won a remarkable victory, and it's not so much that Custer lost, obviously he could have done things differently, it's that they won. And uh, they really earned it with fighting skill, with um, exemplary leadership at the battle, including Crazy Horse, um, with very large numbers, with the fact that they were quite militant and feeling quite um, confident after winning another major battle a few days before uh, against another column. So if we, if we focus on Custer too much as the cause of that um, uh, defeat for the Army, then we ignore the other side of the equation. Uh, it's like Pickett said when he was asked what Lee did wrong at Gettysburg. Uh, Pickett said, I always thought the Yankees had something to do with it. Um, and certainly that's the case at the Little Bighorn. The other thing is, is that um, uh, Custer himself, um, you know, his, the one thing, even his enemies in the Army, and he had many enemies in the Army, the one thing they all agreed is that he could uh, lead well in combat. And so that is one of the reasons why it was such a shock to Americans. Uh, it wasn't just that anyone had died and been defeated. It was that Custer was. And again, if, if one of his peers in the, in the Army, and there were some very capable officers at his level, Nelson Miles or Wesley Merritt, if they had led the 7th Cavalry to disaster at the Little Bighorn, in exactly the same way, it would probably be a state park instead of a national monument today. It, it was who Custer was going into the battle that, that gave it an extra resonance. It still would have been extremely significant from the Native point of view in, their, in terms of their history and the conquest of the West, but Custer's standing in American culture and his reputation as a, as a combat officer really um, made, gave that battle a particular lasting and immediate resonance. Um, you know, I don't let Custer off the hook, but neither do I prosecute him. I try to look at him as a full human being, full of flaws, but also of strengths. And um, the little bighorn, it's not the focus of my book. I, I deal with it at the end. Um, I mainly agree with certain historians' conclusions rather than try to rewrite the book on it. Um, but uh, again, I think it's important to know that it was a shock precisely because everyone thought that Custer was good at fighting, and he was his entire life. He fought two battles in 1873 against Sitting Bull and the Lakotas, the exact same people who later crushed him. And in those circumstances, he performed quite well, and he didn't act foolishly, and he kept his men under, under a tight rein, and he had, handled himself very well in very difficult situations. 
And so the idea that he was a fool who's doomed to meet his end um, disastrously at some point is simply not true. I want to um, I want to talk about this poignant scene you have in the, the epilogue. It just really struck me. And the, the, the parallels to today as well. Um, this idea that uh, we argue over Custer as, as a you know, reflect, reflection of who we are. Um, so uh, Custer died in 1876. So 10 years later, 1886. In the meantime, uh, Libby, uh, Custer's wife, and Eliza, the, the household manager, they've had a falling out, and uh, Eliza has left. But they have a reunion in New York. I want to just read this passage. The two women, white and black, walk together as equals through the streets of New York. And here's what Eliza says, Miss Libby, you don't take you don't take notice uh, how the folks does stare at us. She goes on to say that you know there's a the real real racial element here, um, and uh, you go on to say Eliza understood better than Libby how the world had changed. Um, yeah, I, this is you know this is really interesting. I you know I got an angry email from somebody who didn't like my talking about uh, race in my book. You know race was a priority for Libby and for uh, George Armstrong Custer. I mean, this was the way the world was changing. And they were fascinated with, with other people who were different from them, um, and they, they struggled with this question. But it was a very personal matter for them as well. And one of the reasons we know so much about Eliza Brown is that Libby was interested in her. And Eliza Brown only learned to read and write in a very crude way when um, she was much older, and after she had left their service, I believe, um, or been fired, actually, you know, there was this ongoing tension between the two women as Libby resented more and more the way in which Eliza Brown had outmaneuvered her. And um, she wrote about Eliza Brown in her memoir, and, and the tensions are reflected there, and yet also Libby's fascination with this person and her interest in people who were of other, uh, you know, another race from her. And so... Um, what happened is is that Libby wrote her first memoir, and she found out where Eliza Brown had gone. Eliza Brown had married a black lawyer in Ohio, who's a pub, famous public speaker there. Um, you know, a black lawyer in Ohio. That that I don't know if there were any black lawyers in Ohio before the Civil War. Um, it, it was that profession alone tells us about how the world was changing, even with the downfall of Reconstruction and the imminent rise of Jim Crow laws in the South, still things had changed. And Eliza Brown is once again at the forward edge of that. And um, she, her now, name was now Eliza Brown Davison. And so Libby finds her. Um, she come, they, Eliza Brown comes to New York, and the two of them reminisce, and they walk around. And um, Eliza Brown says this thing, uh, if you have to pardon me, I have to use the N-word here, she says, look at the way they're looking at me. They all think, um, what's this fine lady doing with this, this um, old scrub nigger? And what she means, I think, from reading all of her statements, is that, look, that's the way they see me. That's what they think. Um, and yet Eliza Brown was the, was the wife at that point of a successful and prominent lawyer. She wasn't dressing like a, a field slave. She was well-dressed. She was somebody who had social standing. And she was saying to Libby Custer, look, even now they see us this way. And Libby saw it as um, Eliza Brown saying, oh, you're so nice to, to bring me around to all these, these nice places. And in fact, the, I think that that very passage shows how they were looking at the world differently. And so Libby deserves credit. She was interested in Eliza Brown. She took her seriously as a person. And yet the way they saw the world is still going to be different. Um, it's always going to look different for Eliza Brown um, than it will for, for Libby. And so we owe Libby a debt for bringing Eliza Brown alive on the page and incorporating her memories into her best of her three mem memoirs, Tensing on the Plains. And yet um, the world that Custer had made was a different one than Custer knew and accepted himself. Um, it's a world of, uh, of emancipation, a world in which African Americans are struggling to find a place for themselves, a place where people are debating um, whether Native Americans should be sovereign or whether they should be absorbed into U.S. society, or as some believe that they should be exterminated, something people actually argued at the time. Um, you know, this is a, a world in which the definition of what it means to be an American is in play. 
And you see it in this quiet moment as the two of them are wandering around New York, spending time together. Um, you know, even though it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful relationship, you still see the divide that's there in this quiet moment between the two of them. We are uh, out of time. There's uh, much more, of course, to, to read. Uh, fascinating read. Custer's Trials of Life on the Frontier of a New America. It's the winner of the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for History. The author is T.J. Stiles. You can find out a lot more about him at his website, tjstiles.net. T.J. Stiles, uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today. We go now to commentator Gina Wickwar. I'm thinking very hard about hiring a personal secretary. I know, I sound like one of those English ladies in the 1920s novels whose chauffeur spends his time polishing the Bentley's bonnet before driving her ladyship around. When not sightseeing the streets of London or taking a spin to Oxford, she spends her days telling the cook what to order for dinner, when and how tea will be served, or how beastly it's been to be working with the vicar on the latest church jumble sale. In these stories, you never read that her ladyship, or his lordship for that matter, sits down at her heppel-white escritoire, opens bills, and pays them. Never. I'm quite different. I, myself, drive my car, which I sometimes remember to take to the car wash. I make up my shopping list with the occasional help from my spouse, and I do all the grocery shopping. I've never dreamt of serving tea and crumpets, but I do cook dinner every night, and I devote at least three or four hours a month involved in various garage sales and fundraisers. It's in the answering mail and paying bills department where I need help, where I can assume an Edwardian languor and direct a special person to walk out daily to my mailbox, grab the armload of mail, come back in, sit down at my Formica kitchen counter, open the envelopes, sift through the magazines, heave most into the wastebasket, and settle down to answering pleas from charities and other needy causes or paying the important bills like utilities, credit cards, and the mortgage. The skills needed for this personal secretary position are very important, which is to say he or she must be literate, be able to count, and this is very significant talent, be able to more or less read and write cursive. How I might delicately compose this classified newspaper ad has me perplexed a bit. My ad might be considered discriminatory or, worse, elitist. That's why I'm still pondering how to do it. More important, though, is that I don't know what the going rate would be to pay such a precocious and precious person. Probably cheaper than keeping a chauffeur or a cook, I should think. But then you have to factor in that this is late 2016 in the United States, not 1922 in merry old England. This is Gina Wickwar. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.